Okay. So there's this thing that I keep hearing people say, especially in like podcast culture or reviews. And it's whenever, usually it's whenever somebody says they're, they dislike something. So let's say they dislike Josh Gad, just an example. Okay. And they're, they dislike the fact that he was in Murder on Orient Express or Frozen. And whenever they don't necessarily talk about his performance or what was annoying, but they say the Josh Gad of it all. Have you heard people start okay. saying that? The blank. I have of it. not, but I'm usually about three years behind any slang. I feel like I don't know that it's just started, but I feel like I've been hearing it everywhere. Okay. But, and especially so, uh, uh, when I listen to like movie podcasts, movie review podcasts, which I do a lot, there are so many different people that keep being like, it'll be a person that annoys them or a person that's a problem. Like, like, oh, the Michael Bay of it all. Or I've heard people even talking about Christy or that like they're talking about the mirror cracked and they're like, oh, the German measles of it all. Or, you know. Oh, that's these... weird. It's weird. And it like means nothing. And I hate it. <laughs> it's become like the worst, like the worst pet peeve of mine now. Anytime I listen to a podcast when somebody says it and they could be someone I admire so much. And then they'll say the blank of it all. And maybe nobody who's listening has heard anybody do that. I feel like I've been hearing it everywhere. It's like when you learn a new word and then you hear everybody use it. Yeah. And you would swear that you'd never heard it before. Hmm. And I feel like maybe it's all like, I don't think it's a young person slang. I feel like it's all millennials doing it because I don't think it's any young people I hear, but it's driving me crazy. The blank of it all. Okay. Good to know. No, this is new to me. So I'm going to be using that a lot more now. So with that, we're trendy. <laughs> the Sophie Hanna of it all. Welcome to Don't Drink the Tea, the Agatha Christie podcast where we analyze books one by one. I'm Josh. And I'm Charlotte. And today we are going to be talking about the Sophie Hanna of it all. We're <laughs> not talking about a book written by Agatha Christie. We are talking about a book written in the Agatha Christie verse. Ta-da! I'm excited for this. It is a spinoff. We talked about it last time that we were going to go off into the books written by Sophie Hannah. And uh, I don't in know. In order wrote... that she, sorry, in the order that yeah. she wrote them, but not in particular, no particular order as in where they appear in the canon, right? Yeah, because I think we've already passed where she says that. She said that she did it in a gap of Poirot. Like, right. there's somewhere in the canon, and it's earlier, I think, around Mystery of the Blue Train, where there's several years without Poirot, which is pretty rare, that she mm -hmm. usually she did one every couple of years. And so she said she put all of her books in that little gap. Okay. So I guess Poirot's always about the same age, and yeah. Like, what was he doing in between there? Right. And these books are what he, what he was doing. Um, <laughs> So have you ever heard her talk about in an interview how this came about, how she started writing her Poirot books? I don't think I have. I don't know if I'm going to get this 100% right, but it's pretty neat how it wasn't even like on her mind. Her agent was having a meeting at HarperCollins right. about something else entirely, about a different author. And he's in an office. And he looks over like at a shelf and there's all of their new Christie books. And he's like, hey, you know who could really write a, a new Poirot book? That'd be Sophie Hanna, my my author, the one I represent. And they were like, oh, okay, maybe. And then like, you know, he runs out and calls her and tells her that he did this pitch. And Sophie Hanna was like, you know, I was an enormous fan of Agatha Christie. She was a huge Christie fan always. Right. And, but she never had thought of her books being Christie-esque. But after right. that, when she read them, she was like, no, I guess I've always been writing like Agatha Christie when you really get down to the basics. And then the way think, that she taught people to write. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think anybody would read her books and feel like they have the Christie spirit, like a Christie setup. But mm. uh, they all have um, the similar 
she checks the boxes of how, like you said, how Christy taught us or how, what Christy inspires you to create. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think like it wasn't determined yet. Would it have been Poirot, whatever? But I know that the funny part of the story is that it wasn't even her idea. Like she didn't even pitch it. It was like her random, her agent just randomly throwing her in there. Wow. And so she thought about it and she was like, oh, I think I do have an idea. And then she she brought it to them and then they moved forward. Because uh, I had heard an interview with um, one of the the guy one of the guys who worked at the publishing agency i don't know what his title was and he said that was something that they had never considered for the longest time they kept being like what new are we going to do oh we're not going to do that we're not ready we're not ready we're not ready Mm -hmm. but i think in the back of their mind they knew that that probably would happen but christy had said she didn't want that to happen like she Mm -hmm. didn't like the idea of it and i feel like most authors would say the same thing and you keep that in mind for like to be respectful of them but also they just they wanted to make money too um yeah and there was it wasn't like oh, okay agatha christie's in a slump like her sales aren't doing really well we need right. to find some way to reinvigorate yeah all they have to do is i don't even think they'd have to do that they you know reissue things with the new beautiful covers and put out a new series of of cover designs and then people are going to run out and buy them again it's it's just yeah. So, yeah. So I can see where it, that wouldn't have been something that they were desperately searching for someone yeah, to do it. And I don't even know. It, yeah. That would be a really hard thing. Cause you feel like there would be so many people who'd be clamoring to do right. it. And yeah, given her body of work, which I don't know a lot about, but I think that would have seemed a strange thing, unless you'd heard her talk about Christie. If you hear her talk about Christy, then you kind of almost automatically fall in love with her. <laughs> yeah. At the time when this was announced, uh, I was at a point where I thought I had read everything Christy had done. And like, I was like, okay, yes, I need this. Um, a lot of people, a lot of fans were like, oh, how could you do this? You know, how could you touch the, but I was ready for new things. Um, but that name, it was so weird. And I immediately got some of her books to be like okay is she like is she one of christy's heirs and Mm -hmm. no she she wasn't at all so it's an interesting choice because it's not even that like she doesn't write like christy but like a lot of her books aren't even basic murder mysteries like when they talk about authors that are the new christy like right because she's considered psychological thriller right? right exactly which Christy, not even like you would of, say, like a crime writer, right? Right. But yeah. Mainly psychological. They're very psychologically driven, and a lot less emphasis on the plot. Which it's not like everything is plot with Christy, but that's what people know her for. So mm-hmm. it definitely wasn't them going for the safest bet when they chose the author. They chose someone who was unconventional, but I think they chose someone who they thought was a good writer and respect would be respectful of the uh canon because i remember reading an interview with her when it came out and people were worried about what she was going to do and she promised that she wasn't going to have him skateboarding or anything like that and she said it was true there space yeah like there are no oh no we need to update this for the new generation yeah if it ain't broke don't fix it (laughs) up to up to the point of what we've read which has been four books there paro has not skateboarded but there's a new one coming out in september (laughs) so yeah i know that this these are ones that are they have agatha christie's signature on them they're approved by her estate do you know how involved her grandson is with those choices because i know he's very um he's very immersed or he used to be in the, in the running of the publishing and things like that. Like, yeah. does he get a say or does he just kind of like, you know, good job guys. I like this idea. Or do you know like how much I influence think, he has? I think the him or the body he represents has to sign off on things. That you That's what I thought think. too. Because uh, before him, Rosalind, which is his mom, um she was super tight-fisted like she did not she her era was the like there was very few things being done 
in like the 80s before Agatha Christie's Poirot. And they were very reluctant to give out the rights for like movies and TV. Mm. Uh, like, that was the era of, you know, those three hour, like, why didn't they ask Evans seven dials? They were like, oh, okay, we'll give you these ones that we don't care that much about. And then <laughs> if they did something slightly off, like they changed something a little bit, Rosalind would write a very angry letter about it. I think <laughs> it's clear, especially with the cr bunch of things we've seen lately that are very Christie adjacent, that Matthew Pritchard is much more uh, relaxed in what he allows. Mm -hmm. And not that they allow anything um, disrespectful, but cause, I mean, because I remember reading that they they didn't really want anything to do with see how they run. Like they ran it by them, but they didn't like put the Christie stamp of approval on see how they run, which yeah, I Yeah, and I, I think we discussed <laughs> yeah yes. at length why they obviously yes. wouldn't have done that. Because we'd be like, what? No. <laughs> but this I imagine they've signed off on, I'm sure, especially with this one in particular, maybe not so much now that they have a working relationship, but mm -hmm. I think I remember hearing them, and I, I hate saying that, like I, I haven't done my research, but I've heard these interviews before that she had to submit her manuscript and didn't know if it was going to get approved or not. Mm -hmm. Oh, I cannot imagine the nerves. The like, <laughs> yes. oh my goodness, you would just feel like you would you would be terrified either way if they said yeah. no or if they said yes <laughs> um i feel like every word you would write you would be second guessing because mm -hmm. i mean even thinking about writing a book that your friend listens or reads but then thinking i'm submitting this to uh, agatha christie's grandson and they get to sh uh, they get to decide is this worthy of the queen of crime Dame agatha right christie? or anyone who had read you know like every poirot like if you just yeah. ask someone who was uh, you know um an aficionado or something about it that they would they would feel very strongly <laughs> yeah and who could write really and extended you know like a continuation that would please every fan every expert i think that would be impossible right because everybody has such differing opinions about her work let yeah. alone but but i like i really like that it's controlled mm -hmm. that you know that it that they put thought into who they wanted well you know or or serendipitously it happened yeah. like with the story that you told but that they it wasn't like that it just became like everybody could write a story with Poirot in it yeah would cheapen it and yeah which, which happens a lot with now with like it's been going on for a while like Sherlock Holmes yeah or Sherlock Holmes adjacent books because I mean that's been forever exactly um but it becomes like it or becomes James a glut of things yeah. yeah that you would never be able to read them all or take them all in and some of them are just you know really bad <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah especially with a character now that i mean i don't know how much sherlock holmes is sherlock holmes is in the public domain but a character that is that old uh, and i was gonna bring up sherlock holmes on this because he it's not strange for us now i think to see a book on shelves or even see a movie or tv show that has sherlock holmes in it that is not in any way quote unquote based on something conan doyle wrote like mm -hmm. it's putting him in a completely like we wouldn't bat an eye at that now because we're so used to it so this right. is kind of the first thing like of course there was one-off movies here and there but more so with miss marple like there was those margaret rutherford movies which we'll talk about one day mm -hmm. in the 60s where they put her in random stories and then uh the agatha christie's marble show is much more liberal with the changes but with poirot mm -hmm. like here in English language foreign language is different but with Poirot they've been much more protective of that brand I think mm -hmm. like we don't yeah. see a whole lot of Poirot that is not very closely tied with with the Christie books I mean there's episodes of like the show that are that are different but most of the time you're not saying Poirot right. a different Christie right you and like like you said with with Sherlock like you got like the the new shows like you've got elementary and you've got well, i say new i mean modern set in modern times like we've we haven't had a high 
notoriety Poirot that's set in any other time than where he belongs, you know? That would be very unusual, I think. And I, I imagine, well, I imagine someone could make it work, maybe, but I don't want it. <laughs> and maybe, but that's what I was wondering, like, maybe this is the beginning, because I'm sure when they first started doing other things with Sherlock Holmes, that was a, quite a ways back. Um, right. I was looking at, at books that were written by other authors of Sherlock Holmes stories that were, you know, were back in the, you know, 40s and 50s, because it was a, it's a much older brand than Poirot. Yes. And so, uh, like, is this the beginning of things changing where, I mean, since this has come out, what, we've had Poirot video games. And yeah. <laughs> just recently, you know, the, for first they were based off of books that already existed, but one recently came out that was completely original. And I haven't got to play play that yet. And then we have a Poirot movie coming out that is loosely based off of mm -hmm. the source material rather than sharing the title. So I just wonder if not necessarily this is the start, but if we're getting into an era where it's more acceptable, at least generally, the fans still get annoyed, but generally- to play with it a little bit. Yeah. And yeah. I'm okay with that for the most part. Like, I don't <laughs> want to see him skateboard. I don't know that I would like, like you said, a modern Poirot. I would watch the heck out of it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I like it, but- Right. right. This might be us seeing new things, but for um, I'm glad to have new content. But right now- Nobody's doing that, and we are, have so much content that's Christie related thrown at us that we could be yeah. podcasting for the rest of eternity. So we don't need to be asking for it. <laughs> which but is which like, is our goal. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. So I know we're gonna move into the meat of the book that we're actually here to talk about, and Zach is not here to to like give us any type of focus whatsoever. Um, that we just can geek out on it. But a, a cute story. Someone came into the bookstore. This elderly lady she was like i don't remember which christie's i have she wanted to buy a christie but she didn't know and her her daughter was like oh no the list is at home what are we going to do she's like i'm pretty sure i don't have this one <laughs> or this one <laughs> so she comes up she's like did you know that she wrote like 35 books and i was like i hate to tell you this close. <laughs> but it's more like 70 or 65 or 70 i probably told her wrong she's like oh <laughs> yeah it's 66 crime novels okay so crime novels and so then you have to think of short story collections the romance books the and i think it's closer to 80 but yes yeah, 60 so she's got double yeah. the uh, yeah <laughs> but it was so cute that's really funny i had a i feel like i've talked about it on the uh, podcast before but i when i was a kid i went up with one of them and like you know the person behind the counter said like oh it's funny that you know you're a kid and you're buying this book even though all kids start with Christy. Yeah. but um my mom was like yeah he wants to collect them all and then the lady was like honey don't you know that there's like a hundred of these books? And she said that like she was like poo-pooing my idea. And I was like, awesome. Like I'm challenge accepted for the rest of my and I'm still doing it. There's still some I don't have. <laughs> yes. The so beginning anyway, of the slide. The first one that we are going to talk about is the monogram murders. That Which is was published in 2016. 2014. Oh my. Okay. It is the first in the series that is called The New Hercule Poirot Mysteries, according to Goodreads. New Hercule Poirot Mysteries That's number one. On the very top of the uh, yep, yeah. the New Hercule Poirot Mystery. Yeah. So like we said, there's four now. There's one coming out in uh in a couple of months. I don't think we're gonna be caught up. And um but this is the start of it. Um I remember uh i was so 2014 i was 17 so way too old for this but when i went to the bookstore <laughs> i i hadn't been buying i mean i've been buying christie so i hadn't been buying new books usually you thrift christie and for the old cool covers yeah um, and when i went to the store and saw how much it was i think you were there too and i was like i want it so bad but it's so much money and you're like okay we can split it we can have like joint custody of the book and i was like oh right. my goodness and it was probably decades before you got it but probably <laughs> just until now i think we both read it when it came out yeah well obviously you read it first because you read quicker and then i read it and promptly forgot 
95% of it and just recently yeah. had the pleasure of rereading. <laughs> so if then you can remember, if you can hearken back, um, I'd like for both of us to just talk about our first uh, like uh, impressions to see how they differ from this. Because for me, I really, really wanted to savor it. So I remember like every night I had to have the perfect scenario, like, you know, it was the same time of night. I had to be really comfy in my chair and it'd be dead quiet in the house. And then I would read it like with, you know, a drink or something like that. Not like an alcoholic draft 17, but um, hot chocolate. We all know it was probably hot, chocolate. hot chocolate in my old man robe. And then I remember pretty quickly in like three or four chapters in, I felt something was off and I was disappointed with it the first time I read it. I will say the second time I read it, that I have different feelings. But the first time that I read it, I was significantly disappointed. Mm -hmm. How about you? Yeah, you I, <laughs> I'll try or I'll make something up. No, same thing, actually. Well, not like that. I, I, I think I read it too quickly. Mm. And I think that's just the S, even though I have never read an, an actual Sophie Hanna by Sophie Hanna book, yeah. and which I need to. one to date now. Yeah, but I feel like she writes in a way that requires your full attention. And I did not give it that when I read it the first time. I was speed reading it and not savoring it. And I remember being like, well, this is like, I was like, uh, you know, okay, whatever. But I'm not blown away. I don't know what I expected, but I was, I had an attitude about it. Um but yeah, which is really mean considering the fact that I don't even, I didn't even remember what happened. And that wasn't any yeah. fault of hers. Not like, okay, it was lousy and it didn't make an impression. It was not that at all. I didn't give it its full attention. And also, I genuinely think this is a book that requires two reads I to, to process. Because when I read it again, even though I didn't fully remember what happened, I, I paid more attention. I, I was more focused. And I enjoyed it more the second time, but I feel like that's just, and I'm, I'm happy to hear you say the same thing that the first time you went through it, you're like, uh, -huh. <laughs> but I, I just feel like this, even if you were picking this up for the first time, I would say read it twice. <laughs> for sure. I think, and that the reason why I'm excited to, to discuss it so much is like, I always say in this podcast, I love when you make choices and <laughs> you do makes, say that she made so many choices here because not none of what is in this book would be I think what any of us would think when they say write a new Poirot book like it is far from that not in a bad way it's just like a very abstract book in the scenario that like I never would have connected those dots like only Sophie Hannah could have come up with doing this as the next Hercule Poirot mystery I don't think anyone else in the world would and I think many authors would probably have played it too safe mm -hmm. and it would have been boring. Yeah. I guess at this point we should probably give the synopsis. Yeah. Cause we know what we're talking about, but if there's anyone still listening, they don't know what we're yeah. talking about. Yeah. <laughs> so the monogram murders, can you give us the, the uh, sleeve, the in, inside sleeve? Of course pitch? I can. So Poirot is, he's in a coffee shop. He's taking a vacation from himself. He's in a London coffee house and he's got this internal monologue about how like annoying people are and how bad the coffee is. And this lady comes in and pretty much the gist of it is she says, I'm a dead woman or I shall be soon. Poirot is trying to find out what she means and she won't tell him. She just keeps kind of like invading the question. She's like, oh, I'm going to be dead. And uh, then later on, Poirot learns that three guests at this hotel have been murdered, and each one of them have been found with a cufflink, a monogram cufflink in their mouth. And Poirot believes that these two in incidents are connected. I mean, already, yes. that in itself like it's the a good first hook scene, the first scene i can definitely see christy writing it but already w when did christy ever start a book with three people already dead like that like i mean i know yeah. she did it but like <laughs> the murders have already happened they're all in one location mm -hmm. they all died the same night already that feels like just like 
an unchristy thing, which is unfair to say just simply because she didn't do it. But right, it doesn't it mean she didn't feels think it. Like an idea that would not have just come easily. Hmm. Yeah, and also going on in the background, so we have a new narrator. Poirot is living in a boarding house in London. Um, and there's a reason given for that, which I can't remember. Maybe it's what you said about he just needed to kind of get away from himself. Or like it had good heating, the building had, excuse me, good heating or something recall. like that. I, I wrote down Poirot is on vacation from himself because I remember him <laughs> saying that. She yeah. is writing a very um, contemplative Poirot in this. Mm -hmm. uh, very like a little bit uncomfortable with himself, even in his own ego. And I re remember that line and wrote it down. And maybe mm -hmm. that was just more of a uh, metaphorical thing than a literal thing. Yeah, maybe. So he's living in this boarding house and another person who lives there is a young police detective whose name is Edward Catchpool. And so he's m the main narrator for most of it. And of yeah. course, the first thing your goal, your brain is going to go to is like, you know, oh, this is the new Hastings, mm -hmm. which in, and I get, I guess in a tiny way, I don't, I don't know, would you say it's more of an homage to Hastings than a, because uh, I mean, that's, and, and that's kind of, that's kind of polite too, because we first meet Poirot through Hastings. Yeah. So it seems fitting though, even though, like you said, the beginning scene is, is Poirot himself, but um yeah, the description of Edward Catchpool I wrote down because I really liked. He described himself as a straightforward person who works best at straightforward things. Mm -hmm. So right away, you can feel that him and Poirot are going to be annoyed with each other the entire entire time. Yeah, it felt like, like you said, an homage to Hastings, a, a similar dynamic, but in a less irritating way, because it's like what makes him so different from or not or how he can't understand Poirot is not because he's just dumb, which is what we often, or at least I often accredit Hastings to be, but they just have, they both are very intelligent, but have very different minds, which is nice. Right. And she also introduced, and not to an annoying level, but she introduced like all of Catchpool's, um, like why he doubts himself so much. Mm -hmm. and why he isn't like at his best with this particular crime like he's like yeah I've, I've solved other crimes and but this one just is like particularly difficult for him not for like a deeply personal reason like he knew the victims or anything but just because of like a traumatic event yeah. in his childhood he has a heart is like through the whole thing he's like i'm not at my best i'm not focusing and so in that way it's kind of nice cause, like you said because hastings is just like you know, it's just like good lord you know <laughs> this just, it's just his job to be like does anyone here have red hair yeah um it's just kind of his job to be the stalwart british stereotype but yeah she did kind of give a reason why catchpool was off his game for this which i guess it kind of logically leads to why he asked for poirot's help which Poirot at first was like, no, no, no. But you know, of course, he was going to help him, whether he asked for it or not. <laughs> right. And with Hastings, a lot of the time, the service that he does for the book is it makes Poirot look good. But it's like, you know, Poirot will say something. Hastings won't understand the significance of it. And he gets to like prod Poirot with these, you know, pretty obvious comments or questions or misunderstandings. With Catchpool, through the entire book, almost about everything is constant debate. And I feel like that is Sophie Hanna's, what she really likes to write is debates. Mm. Um, for instance, I wrote down, like, there's this whole chapter, chapter three. This is after they found the three bodies in the hotel. And they just have this chapter long debate on the differences of the rooms. Like Poirot will say, oh, did you notice that this was different here? And I think that that's significant. Right, because the the, th the three victims are in three different rooms, like on three, like floors, three, four, and mm -hmm. five. Two of them are identical and one of them is not. Slightly different. And yeah, of course. Yeah. And so Poirot keeps bringing up things, like you said, that would like, why is this different? Why? And he's like, well, Catchpool's like, well, maybe it was just this very simple explanations, which yeah. could very well have been 
true. Right. Yeah. And I think that is interesting. And she is really good at that. I really love that chapter because um, she pours over the details. And I think it makes things more impressive, too, because Poirot will see the thing and he'll make this leap of logic. And sometimes as the reader, you can be like, well, yeah, I know, but that's a bit of a leap. Like there's so many things it could have been. Mm. And then he brings those up. He's like, no, it could have been this. And then Poirot gets to like have this mental joust with him. Like, no, it could have been that, but this is more logical or this is more psychologically. Um, or this is what I wanted it to be. <laughs> yeah. But they get to have these, these uh, psychological or logical debates that are really interesting to read because you wouldn't think of looking at this one object that you could look at it from so many different angles. But hearing them talk about those things is really enjoyable. I will say on that note that they do bicker over everything in that regard. Like sometimes I was like, Catchpool, if you say anything, I'm going to slap you because Poirot will just make an observation and Catchpool will have to do. And that Sophie Hannah does that in her other books too. Um, okay. Perfect Little Children, the one that I, I, I say her other books. I read one other book. Uh, but in that <laughs> sorry, book, Sophie, if you're listening, yeah, sorry, we Sophie. still love you. <laughs> I have more on my shelf, but I actually tried to find some today. I was at a secondhand bookstore and there were none to be had they're too recent i tried but i do have a couple on my shelf and it's the same thing that's the book i talked about where she sees her friend and there's 10 years apart when she sees her and both times she sees her her kids are the same age so what's so the whole book is her pretty much there is some action that happens but a lot of times it's her debating with her husband and daughter about well it could be this no but it well it could be this (laughs) and it's like i think that is Sophie Hannah's skill where she likes to take an impossible situation like, like this is with the three people in the hotel. It's very impossible and fantastical and pour over every single possibility and prove to you, this is why it can't be a simple thing. This is why it can, mm-hmm. I'm going to check off every box except for the one that is the truth. And I think that is her strong suit. It did get a little old because I think she does it a bit too much. It got a mm-hmm. little editive, but <laughs> I I enjoyed re- like just as a lover of mystery novels, it's like oh I never could have seen all of the angles of this one object, and it was mm-hmm. really satisfying for her to to show off in those debates, especially in that first chunk when it was just about the rooms. There's so many little details that she packs in there that it felt so real. It felt like an actual crime scene I was looking at. Yeah, and I think that's another reason why this one is a is good to have a second read or a very very in depth, like focused for one, first read once over read, um, is that you you've got almost two two stories going on. You've got you've got the first act, like you said, all in London, all at the crime scene, all about the physical evidence and the timing, and then you have the second half, which is how did we get here which is a whole story all on its own why these three people were there you find out they all came from the same village and poirot's like whoa hit the brakes you know this is not a coincidence this is this is the linchpin this is what everything hangs on so you have the whole backstory and it i mean it's not it's not a huge book i didn't think i mean it's a very 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 um old person thing to say but it had a nice size font and it is big print, yes. It uh not huge, but let's see. It is well, it's this size. Oh yeah, that, that's helpful to the podcast audience. It. it is eight by <laughs> it's a typical hardcover size and it's 302 yeah. pages. It's not overlong. Um, no, it isn't. And how she could have packed all of that, all that she did into something that isn't 500 pages long is pretty impressive. She didn't have a lot of um fat to trim really definitely i agree and i find it so interesting that again that she chose to do this for her first book because her other books don't even do this but i think about early like the we're still in the era of christie's the closed circle suspects and you know but this book it doesn't really have a whole lot of suspects a lot of times they're even piecing together what the mystery even is. And slowly through the book, you kind of glean suspects and characters. 
but it's not the usual Christie setup where it's like, well, here are these here's these ten people we know they're connected to the crime, whether it's they were at the location or they're part of the family, whatever. Right. No, she pinballs off of that a lot. Like some of the very important characters you don't meet till halfway through. Yeah. And it feels a lot to me, even like later Christy, like Nemesis by the pricking of my thumbs, the clocks, books where the mystery is this obscure thing at the beginning. And slowly over the course, you are gathering more of those facts, but not at all the way Christy usually does it, where she delivers the cast to you at the beginning and you get to to deduce from it. She's doing something that's is a later Christy style, definitely mm-hmm. not early. And it's funny because when we get to the next one, she does the other type of Christy. She does a closed circle with her next one. Yes, that's um, right. She does. So I, I have. Only, you said there's four books. of these. There's four of these. Four, four Sophie Hannah Poirots without the new one that's come out. So yeah. I've read two, and I've. I remember second the next one's closed casket, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, I remember that one a tiny bit more, but <laughs> there's a lot of brain cells missing since the last time. But the next two are Mystery of the Three Quarters yeah. and The Killings at Kingfisher Hill, which you I have no clue about. Absolutely will, blank slate. I will back you up on that because by the time those two books came out, I was a big boy and could buy it all on my, all my own. <laughs> and- I told you that I would let you borrow them and you just would tell me when you were ready for them and that never came. So I know you didn't read right. those two. No, and I'm going to, I'm definitely going to buy, I've been putting it off. I'm going to buy the killings of Kingfisher Hill myself because I love the cover of the edition we have at the bookstore. It's so pretty. Yeah. It's so pretty. And like, <laughs> this is this really petty, but um, Kingfisher is like one of my favorite birds and I just love the word. So just yeah. the fact, I know you said that that was like spoilers. That was like an inferior story. I love the title but so I much. I when I read it at first. So I don't know how so things could be back. different. Yes, that's right. I've only read any of the, I had only read any of these one before, once before this one. Okay. Um, and thinking back on them, each of them, I have something that it's like, which I love, like there's, for each of them, there is at least one aspect, even the ones I didn't like so much. I really want to talk about this one thing that she did that was really interesting and new, like mm-hmm. even new to the world of Christie. So what um, was it in this one? So with this one, it was literally just that setup. I like, I find the setup fascinating that she even shows that how bold it is. But mm-hmm. one thing she talked about, and she does this in all four of her books, but especially the middle two, the middle two push it to like a really satisfying degree that I have never, I have trouble remembering a lot of the details of these just because I haven't poured over them as much as the regular Christie's. But I remember the motives of the murder for the two middle books because of how neat they are. She talked about in an interview that one of her favorite Christie books is After the Funeral. And I won't spoil After the Funeral, but After the Funeral has a pretty unique motive for murder and Mm -hmm. she said what she liked so much in a crime novel and especially Christie was when the motive for the murder and the solution was something entirely unique to the murderer like it wasn't just that they killed for gain or that but the the Mm -hmm. reason why you killed this person could be only your reason Mm -hmm. yeah not your standard yeah like yeah yeah. and Christie didn't do that a ton but she did do it. Mm-hmm. And I think Sophie Hannah with those two examples does it in the most clever way that I've ever read. And that's cool. saying a lot with all the, the mystery books. This one is not the highest of, of the endings of all of them. It's really interesting how complicated, like I admired how complex this was plotted. <laughs> that's what i wrote down too that the plot was definitely complex <laughs> yeah because the sum up took a long time just mm-hmm. to unravel all of the strings and not in a way that i was like oh brother and just in a way that i was like wow this is like a lot it felt like oh, what's that book one two buckle my shoe it's like with one two buckle my shoe i will never remember exactly what happened 
Like, even with <laughs> yeah. this book, I can't exactly remember the whole murder plot, but I yeah. remember every time I read it, the feeling that I get is like, wow, how can a brain come up with this? Like, it's not overcomplicated, mm-hmm. but there are just so many threads. Because right now, honestly, if we were going to spoil this, which I don't think we should since it is new. No, I was going to say, yeah, they, these are too recent. Yeah. And but so, I could, yeah. I could not spoil this one. Like, it's too complicated <laughs> for me. I don't think I could. The next two I could, but this one, <laughs> I don't think I could easily do it. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So, side note to that, um, a book that has just come out a couple of weeks ago, yeah, this in so in June of 2023, um, that I just gave to you, Unnatural Ends by Christopher Shuang, I think is the last name. I don't have it in front of me. Um, if you like that convoluted multiple mm-hmm. thread kind of thing, then I think you're in for a real treat with that oh, one. Nice. And that one is so because uh, you get so many so many things now that are like the new Agatha Christie or fans of Agatha Christie will love this and I'm like stop putting that on blurbs right. because it's it no <laughs> not it, like it means 75 nothing. yeah 75% of the time they're wrong whoever said that it's just it's just to catch people like us but this one this <laughs> yeah of course yes it does <laughs> but this one unnatural ends like i feel this one should we should discuss it on the podcast because oh, it nice. is it is that involved mm, awesome. it is that like you cannot separate it from christy in my opinion but we'll see what you think after you oh i look forward after to it. you yeah <laughs> I, I even thought of that like the new with this like we said at the beginning um nothing about this book like if you took poirot out of this book I don't know that if anybody would read it and say it was the new Agatha Christie. Like, and she said she didn't want to imitate Christie's writing style, which is hard to do because Christie doesn't have like, you know, that unique of a voice. She was very simple and economical. So if you tried to copy it, you never would sound like it. And so that's why she wanted to put it in the voice of another character. So it didn't seem like she was trying to sound like the way that Christie wrote, because I think that's Mm -hmm. an impossible task. Well, she wrote so differently too. I mean, you would get, right. you would get flowery prose, and then you would get like the book we're doing for book club this month. You would get straight dialogue for pages and pages and pages. So, yeah, it, there's yeah. too much, um, too much variety there to say this is written in the style of Agatha Christie. I did write down a couple of things that I felt were things that you felt you could relate back to other Christie's. Mm-hmm. So whether Sophie Hannah did this, like, again, as like, you know, as, as respectful nods to what Christie has already done, or it just, it just threads itself into the way our brains work because of the way Christie has made our brains yeah. work as far as, as crime fiction goes. But so you had Poirot and then a girl in trouble and it, like him trying to help her and knowing that he can't. So that was a dynamic that you see several times, like yeah. Death in the Nile, Peril at End House, and there's more. Um, it's something so simple as just a chair facing away from a door. That that mm-hmm. is comes in. You spotted that as well. Yeah. <laughs> as an acroid thing. Right. Um someone impersonating someone. I mean, that's just kind of typical trope. Um, messing with the time of death. Mm-hmm. Again kind of expected and then like having too many clues which christy did sometimes Mm -hmm. um which i like because that is it's natural for you to get distracted by that Mm -hmm. it is it's a very easy um candy to throw out and be like oh look go go over there um and i feel like that that sophie hannah did that because she was writing a Christie, Definitely. not just because it's a way to do it, but that's just me. Yeah. And I've heard her say multiple times, her favorite Christie is evil under the sun. Um, oh, wow. She said, she has said the hollow a few times. I think like artistically, she likes the hollow the best, but the plot, she likes evil under the sun the best. And I could see that a lot in this book. Like, even though, you know, setting wise, they couldn't be more distant, but it's mm-hmm. like when you get to the solution of evil under the sun, like the, all the, com- everything is packed into that. Like 
changing the time of death, impersonating a person, like all of the tricks are packed into this little ending. And that's what she does here, where it takes a while to unravel it, even though it's not all that complicated when you really get down to it. But getting through all of the uh, subterfuge and webs of lies and (laughs) I like I could see where she's coming from because I've heard her talk about evil under the sun like a lot of times Mm, in different interesting and like we've said so she is such a delight to listen to she one thing I love about her beyond any like if I had to choose a Christy expert to listen to for the rest of my life it would be Sophie Hannah yes because (laughs) sometimes i'll get annoyed with certain ones and i won't say their names but just because like (laughs) they can be a little dismissive of what they believe is weaker books yeah and she like never behaves that way not that she doesn't like this but she'll always say like i like this one i'm i like that one a little less but she always says like what's highest to me is readability and it's like, you know, maybe this doesn't have the greatest plot or the greatest characters, but like when I read it, I'm like, oh, this is a book. Like right. It's you, so yeah, it's read. You can have you can have a list, you can have a checklist, you can have a rating system, you can have whatever you want, but you cannot quantify if something just makes you feel a yeah. certain way. It's, it's like I like this book thing. because of the way it makes me feel. Yeah. Exactly. And you know what? I think somebody captured it. I was I was reading a couple of blurbs for the new one that comes out in the fall. Mm-hmm. And one author who was who was, you know, had written a recommendation. There we go. For this book. They called her writing egoless. And mm-hmm. I thought so egoless. And I thought that was so nice because that just sums it up perfectly. She's not there to be like, I'm Sophie Hannah and I wrote all the new Poirot books. She's like, I've been given this wonderful yeah. treasure in my hands and let me make everyone proud. <laughs> it's it's about Poirot. It's not about her. And that that comes through and her love for Christy comes through. Yeah, it would be so, so cool to just listen to her talk about christy yeah. like she has like the coolest takes in the world like when i hear her be like oh i like that one like, i don't hear anybody say that they like that one mm-hmm. like it's it's so interesting to be uh just an admirer and sometimes to like take away like the harsh critic where you have to be like well i have to be um what's the word you know uh subjective or mm-hmm. you know, objective objectively like objectively this isn't like no it sometimes yeah. it's not about that it's like emotion versus intellect is okay to be like emotion yeah. like this is the greatest book i've ever read yeah and that was and I, I know that we talked about this when we read the um essay collection because she wrote the foreword because she was talking about a panel that she was on and she yeah. said everything that the other members of the panel said being you know snobbish and in your head, you're shouting, no, you're wrong. And here's 10 reasons. And Sophia wrote like exactly what you're thinking. She's like, right. no, that's not so. And here's why. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, well, oh yeah, well, Agatha Christie isn't Shakespeare or anything. It's like, no, she never tried to be. And like what she has built, people reference now and and accept as a as a framework. It's the touchstone that everything else is measured by. Yeah. And who brought Shakespeare into this? <laughs> it's apples and oranges. Right. Yeah, she's super cool. And I'm glad that we read this on here and that we both have read it before to experience again. And I'm really excited to uh, rediscover the next couple. And, you know, probably won't be incredibly long before it because we want to keep it semi-fresh. Yeah, and I'm really, I was surprised at your take on it because we haven't talked about this at all. Right. Apart from the podcast. Um, But yeah, I don't remember us even talking about it in 2014. Like, I don't know if we just didn't get the chance or something, but. I think um, at the time it was one of those things where when I talked about it, I like really wanted to like it and really didn't want it to be true that I didn't like one mm -hmm. of those things. But even then I didn't despise it. It was just like. Right one of those things like I don't know what to do and sometimes that's even better like when you see something and you're just like I don't know how to feel about this yet Mm -hmm. and now when I discover something like that that's great but I think at 17 I just wasn't ready to be unsure of something yet (laughs) well and I think that's really neat I completely did not expect us to have 
such a similar experience yeah. of like eh to be like oh no 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 this is good yeah. i was unfair the first time or i was in the wrong headspace that's a good so. sign for needing to reread at least this one we'll see how yeah. close cast i'm really excited about close cast it's got a lot of cool stuff in it mm-hmm. obviously we're not going to rank this with the christies because she didn't write it and doesn't make any sense right right <laughs> i think it'll make sense to rank them like next to each other at least give them star ratings because if we don't i think we'll be doing a disservice to everybody i think a, a part of your of your cerebral cortex would collapse if we didn't rate these and it doesn't matter what i say you've already Even, rated them <laughs> well i i haven't read I guess I probably already have without even having thought about it. Like <laughs> subconsciously, like when you said that, I was going to say I haven't ranked them. And then in my brain, I was like, well, but it would have already been that. <laughs> so, uh, Yeah, but it, right it's, now- it's 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 just it's something that's been taken over by your um, autonomic nervous system. Like you you breathe, you blink and you rank things. <laughs> I rank my sleep. It happens without your conscious thought at this point. <laughs> <laughs> but I won't let that influence same way with how we're going through the Christie's because I never would have predicted putting towards zero at number two. You know, mm-hmm. that's that every time we come through, I'm like, and that's, a, I think, also how we also rank a little emotionally because it might not necessarily be better in this way. But when we read it, it's like, what a book, you know? Yeah. And I and- think you can't deny that. Yeah, and I only I'm only gonna do this just because people won't think that I just always agree with whatever you say. <laughs> but I have a lot of respect for this book. And if I had to rank it, I did think about this, I did give it some thought. I would probably go a solid four just because of yeah. what she was able to accomplish. So what All were right. you thinking? Let me check what I gave it because I know it was a point something. Ah. <laughs> I gave it a th- I know it started with a three though. It wasn't quite a four. Where is it? <laughs> I put things in the stupid. Zach was right in the last episode. I was just talking about this when we started because I have, I was trying to find my notes and I have it in a document that has a list of work tasks and then a question for my mommy at the bottom. It's like, <laughs> do this for work, do this work. Ask mom about blank. <laughs> so dumb. It's like, okay, I need to buy paper towels. I need to buy so i need to ask my mom if i was adopted right <laughs> what time was i born <laughs> so i gave it like a three this is like really getting like splitting hairs but i gave it like a 3.7 okay so, <laughs> yeah like well you know close enough to four um and i think what i don't like about it is it makes up what's really cool and unique about it so four stars i am quite happy with that okay and then cool excited to read the next yeah me too i think what i really like besides you know the hook everything we talked about about her being so respectful of christy and and not interested in the fame for herself when there's a little section and it doesn't it is important but it doesn't take up a huge amount of space in the book but where they go back to the village that's like the epicenter of this tragedy and there's a again not to give too much away but there's a woman who lives she was the the vicar's wife but he's passed on and she lives in this long one-story like converted shed kind of thing it's a house but like all one side of it has all these windows and they look out on the graveyard and when when catchpool saw he's like that is the strangest house i've ever seen and the woman uh widow she stays there and she looks out those windows at the graveyard and watches over these two graves to make sure that no one um vandalizes them and just that description for some reason to me was so unique and powerful and that woman i think her name was margaret i think was the name of the character she was just really cool anyway but something about that moment i thought was just so well written and just it just so had like you said about the hotel rooms like she put in so much rich detail without overloading you she just allowed you to picture it which is magical i don't know how authors can do that (laughs) then that goes along with um what i was saying about the impossible or the completely unique motive 
Uh, I think she likes to give somebody, make somebody say an impossible thing or be in an impossible situation and then prove to you exactly how a real person would get there with very yeah. unique psychology, like that instance, like why would someone do that? And then you do believe it. Or even the girl yeah. at the beginning saying, I believe I'm going to be murdered and they think it's that, but then over time you're like, oh, like you prove it to us that that however improbable is a possible thing given these mm-hmm. sets of um, situations. She talked about how in her mind, uh, she didn't need things to be realistic. Like when it came to crime stories, like she wanted things to be like fantastical, but not impossible. And I was like, right. oh, that, I really like how that sounds. Cause that's, that's what crime genre, a crime genre should be. Like you're okay with the book having this, of course, nobody would murder somebody in this way. That's super convoluted, but it's right. It could happen in a real world. And right. And and if you don't have that, if you take away that fantastical or that that uniqueness, then you just have a procedural, which is fine if that's what you want. But you just have, okay, same thing over and over again. We're going to cover the same territory in a slightly different way, but it's not going to really be like like what's that thing they say? um, If you hear if you hear hoofbeats it's probably not a zebra. <laughs> like, you know, if you hear a hoof beast coming towards you, it's like, okay, how many, what's the chances that it's a horse or a zebra? It's probably a horse, <laughs> but the zebra is much more interesting. And you hope when you look around the corner that you see a zebra. <laughs> yeah. You don't want the same thing every time. And when I heard her say that, I like loved it and kept thinking about it over and over again. And then recently I was reading the introduction to the passenger to Frankfurt, one of Chrissy's latest books, and ones that people say that they really hate, but it has a brilliant introduction in it where Christy just talks about, hey, this book is insane. And here's how I justify <laughs> that. Because that book is called The Passenger to Frankfurt, an extravaganza, which is what the publishers demanded she put there when they read how insane the book was. But I just love That's amazing. It. I guess I've never read that one. Yeah, I, neither have I, but I'm reading it now because I got a new really uh, really cool copy of it at the store and I immediately wanted to read it. But at the she talks about how crazy the book is. Um, and she said, to write a story in this year of our Lord, 1970, you must come to terms with your background. If the background is fantastic, then the story must accept its background. It too must be a fantasy, an extravaganza. The setting must include the fantastic facts of daily life. Can one envisage a fantastic cause, a secret campaign for power? Can a maniacal desire for destruction create a new world? Can one go a step further and suggest deliverance by fantastic and impossible sounding means? Nothing is impossible. Science has taught us that. This story is an essence of fantasy. It pretends to be nothing more. But most of the things that happen in it are happening or giving promise of happening in the world of today. It is not an impossible story. It is only a fantastic one. And ah, I love nice. that. Because that is the whole, that is the golden age of crime. And I constantly complain that, which is crazy, that new crime or mystery books are too realistic. And I don't mean like gory, like in that way. I just mean like too down to earth and too predictable because we're not thinking with a creative stroke. Too pedestrian. (laughs) Too mundane. It's okay for things to be fantastic sometimes. Yes. It's okay to have an extravaganza. But we're not going to get to Passenger (laughs) to Frankfurt for a really long time. It's one of the last ones we ever wrote. Another 10 years from now. Yeah. (laughs) Especially with the rate that we even had just trying to talk about this one book. (laughs) Anyway. It was enjoyable. I hope everyone else enjoyed it. And I do hope that people will, like, even if you haven't read very many Christie's, in some cases, I think that might give you an advantage. You can enjoy yeah. this book on a different level. Yeah, it's definitely worthy of checking out or even you don't have to read them in order, even one of the later ones. Same as reading with Christy. You can read Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna ask you about that. These aren't in any way um sequential. Um and I think they are, they might like reference each other, but but it's not like you're going to miss something that is a link in the chain to the next one yeah you could which which is good that's how it should be Um, cool 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 cool. yeah so hope you enjoyed this episode please rate us on wherever you listen to our podcast give us a five-star rating please that would be nice 
None and, of this 3.7 nonsense. And follow us on Instagram. And we yes, will please. be back with an Agatha Christie masterpiece. Crooked house. I have a really long pause there. Because I thought you swallowed a, a bunny or something there. It just looked a little frightened. I'm about to succumb to a burp. And I didn't want to burp as I said the title. Let me try again. We're going to be reading... Agatha Christie's Crooked House. We're bringing in the 1950s with a stellar masterpiece. Which I think you might have mentioned recently is one of her personal favorites. Yes, it's in her top 10. Cool. I'm excited about that. Me too. We'll be talking about that next. Join us then. Have a good one, friends. Goodbye.